Hello, and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane, and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies in a 20-year period. Today, I will be discussing number 17 on my list, Disney's 1991 animated musical Beauty and the Beast, directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, written by Linda Wolverton, and featuring the voice talents of Paige O'Hara, Robbie Benson, Richard White, Jerry Orbach, David Ogden Stiers, and Angela Lansbury. I assume that most people have at least some familiarity with this movie, but in case you don't remember the premise, allow me to set the stage with some words that are not my own, which I have had memorized for most of my life. Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then, one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away, but she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside his castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which would bloom until his twenty-first year. If he could learn to love another, and earn their love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. As the years passed, he fell into despair and lost all hope. For who could ever learn to love a beast? Spoiler alert, a beauty but a funny girl named Belle, once he finds the way to her heart through his library. I can't remember a time when I hadn't seen this movie. My grandparents had it on VHS, so I watched it a lot at their house when I was young. As a child, I didn't love Beauty and the Beast quite as much as The Lion King, but I always enjoyed it, and if anyone asked me who my favorite Disney princess was, the answer was always Belle. I think mostly because we had a similar hair color and we both loved books. But as I got a little bit older, maybe around middle school, I started relating to Belle on a much deeper level. Because while I always did have a few close friends, I never really felt like I fit in with my peers. My schoolmates generally thought I was weird, and not that I think most of them cared much about me one way or the other, but sometimes it felt a lot like I was in that opening number, when Belle is walking through town reading and everybody's singing about how strange she is. Through all of that, Belle is too absorbed in her book to really hear what any of them are saying, and that was a lot like me. I knew I didn't fit in, but I also didn't want to if that meant I had to change my interests or who I was. And as I was entering the age when most kids start really caring what other kids think of them, Belle told me it was okay to keep doing my own thing. And that's around when Beauty and the Beast surpassed The Lion King as my favorite Disney movie. I cannot even begin to guess how many times I had seen it before I started keeping track. 
but I watched it five times in 2003, three times in 2004, once in each year from 2005 through 2007, twice in 2008, once in 2009, twice in 2010, once in each year from 2011 through 2013, once in 2018, once in 2020, and once in 2022. I think the break between 2013 and 2018 reflects the fact that I only owned it on VHS and the main VCR I had access to broke around then. My most recent views were on Disney Plus as part of my Ranking Disney Movies project with my brother. We ended up putting Beauty and the Beast at number two, which I think is a little higher than he would have put it, but we put The Little Mermaid, his favorite, at number three, which is a little higher than I would have put it, and I like that our ranking reflects our combined taste. I know I was biased, but re-watching it then reminded me of how much I still love this movie. I basically have the whole thing memorized, but every rewatch still feels magical. I recognize that it's not perfect, but the things I love about it far outweigh the things that bug me about it. Aside from the protagonist being a more adventurous version of me, the thing I've always loved most about this movie is its music. Every note of the score is gorgeous and contributes greatly to the film's magical tone. The opening notes in particular are beautifully haunting and still give me chills. Every single song is an absolute banger, full of stellar lyrics and delightfully catchy melodies. Belle in its reprise, Gaston in its reprise, Be Our Guest, Something There, The Mob Song, and the Oscar-winning title song are all among the studio's best numbers. No team of composers can top the magic of Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. They had just triumphed with The Little Mermaid, and they proved that that wasn't a fluke with these equally impressive jams. Devastatingly, Ashman passed away before Beauty and the Beast was even released. So although he had started working on Aladdin, this would be the final Disney soundtrack written entirely by the two of them. Obviously, I still enjoy songs from other Disney movies, but I don't feel like they quite reach the same level as the Howard Ashman ones. Ashman was also the executive producer of Beauty and the Beast, and he apparently significantly influenced the story, particularly when it came to fleshing out the character of the Beast. So this movie owes a lot to him. Although I don't want to diminish the work of the screenwriter, Linda Wolverton, who became the first woman to write a Disney animated feature film script. Knowing that the screenplay was written by a woman and the song lyrics were written by a gay man dying of AIDS in the late 80s to early 90s, it's not incredibly surprising that the story's main antagonists are toxic masculinity and mob mentality. Gaston is an unusual Disney villain because he doesn't have magical powers or political ambitions, he's just some guy with a giant ego who thinks he's entitled to the prettiest girl in town. He cannot comprehend her rejection, which is an amazing scene, and so he concocts a nefarious scheme to get her father committed to an asylum unless she agrees to marry him. Then when he sees the Beast as a romantic rival, he stirs up the townsfolk into an angry mob to storm the castle that they apparently didn't even know existed until now, which means if they'd stopped to think for a moment, they would have realized the Beast was not actually a threat to their safety, but mob mentality defies logic. The mob song is probably the least acclaimed number on the soundtrack, but I think it's absolutely perfect, particularly the lyric, We don't like what we don't understand, in fact it scares us. I know there's been some debate about whether Howard Ashman intended for this movie to make a statement about the AIDS crisis, but you can't tell me that line doesn't perfectly apply to anti-LGBT plus attitudes, both then and now. And of course, Gaston is another perfect villain song in that it's almost a parody of a hero song. It's a sort of mame slash Hello Dolly style number sung by drunken buffoons who are praising the strangest qualities with delightfully tongue-in-cheek lyrics. 
Gaston eats 60 eggs every morning? I still don't even really know how to process that, but I appreciate the way that line, as well as the entire song and character of Gaston, perfectly demonstrate the ridiculous standards society places on men to achieve an acceptable level of masculinity, as well as the way society teaches men, particularly straight cis white men, that they are entitled to whatever they want. The Beast is an interesting contrast to Gaston. Side note, I know a lot of people consider the Beast's real name to be Adam, but that came from a video game that was released later, and as far as I can tell, it's not actually canon in the movie, so I'm going to keep referring to him as the Beast. Anyway, at first, he too suffers from an extreme sense of entitlement. Gaston's whole planning their wedding and getting it all set up outside her house and then informing her that they were getting married must have seemed almost reasonable to Belle in hindsight after the Beast imprisons her in his castle in the hopes that that will make her learn to love him. But unlike Gaston, the Beast is willing to learn. He's been living as a monster for so long that it takes time for him to find his humanity again, but once he does, he releases Belle, and it's only after that when she grows to love him. I do feel like there is a way to watch this movie and take away the message that you should stay with an abusive partner in the hopes that you can change them, and I want to acknowledge that that has probably caused harm. But I feel like, as I previously said about Cinderella, the general perception of this movie doesn't actually line up with what it's really about. This seems to happen to a lot of Disney princesses. No, Cinderella is not just doing chores and waiting around for a man, and no, Ariel did not give up her voice for a man, and no, Belle does not stay in a toxic relationship in order to change a man. Also, it's 2023. Can we all please agree to stop talking about Stockholm Syndrome? It was invented by police in the 1970s to discredit a female hostage who had criticized the way they handled the situation she was in. It's not a real thing. And even if it was, Belle does not love the Beast while she's his prisoner, nor does she actively seek to change him into the person she wants him to be. He does the work to become a better version of himself, and then she loves him and wants to be around him. I'm not saying that anyone should try to model real-life relationships after theirs, but it's still very important to me for everyone to understand that Belle canonically does not fall in love with her jailer. If she had, the spell would have broken the moment the Beast told her to leave, since that's when he started truly loving her. She doesn't love him in return until he has demonstrated that he cares about her happiness and respects her ability to make her own decisions. And it's totally fair if you don't think that's enough for him to earn her forgiveness for the way he treated her at first. But personally, I love stories about forgiving people who may or may not deserve it, which is a big part of why I enjoy this movie so much. I realize that, given how much I've complained in previous episodes about how there's too much romance in movies, it may seem strange how emphatically I'm defending the central romance of Beauty and the Beast. But here's the thing. It took me a very long time to understand this, but I don't think I've ever seen Belle and the Beast's relationship the same way that alloromantic, allosexual people do. My first glimpse of this was seeing people analyzing their relationship online and saying, among other things, that since Belle fell in love with the Beast before he transformed back into a human, she must be into bestiality. I do think this is mainly said by people who delight in ruining childhoods by inserting mature themes into children's media, which is just... 
a very weird hobby to have, but it made me realize that I had never seen their relationship as sexual even after the beast became human. Which, again, I don't think you're supposed to because it's an animated kids movie, but what I'm trying to say is that the whole love implies romance implies sex mindset had never occurred to me in general, but also specifically regarding this movie. Because the thing is, the prologue doesn't say, if he could learn to fall in romantic and sexual love with another and earn romantic and sexual love in return, then the spell would be broken. What it says is, learn to love another. Side note, the soundtrack says, and earn their love in return, but the actual movie changes the pronoun to her, which I find a bit irritating, but oh well. I didn't have the language for this until recently, but I can say now that I have never seen Belle and the Beast's relationship as romantic either, at least in the traditional definition of romantic. And I think that's another part of the reason I was so drawn to this movie in my adolescence. At the age when aloe people start developing crushes, the only kind of partnership I was even remotely interested in was what Belle and the Beast had. Someone to hang out with and feed birds or have a snowball fight or dance or read or whatever, with big enough living quarters that you could go off and do your own thing when you didn't want the other person around. And I don't know, maybe all of that sounds romantic to some people, and before I knew aromanticism was a thing, I probably would have called it romantic too. A lot of people with significant others say that those kinds of things are the best parts of their relationship, but there always seems to be an understanding that romance and sex are necessary aspects of a partnership like that, even if they're not the most important aspects. Certainly, the servants see the development of the Beast and Belle's relationship as romantic, especially Mrs. Potts, who doesn't think her son Chip is old enough to hear about it. The song Something There is clearly meant to imply that the something is romantic love. And yet... Somehow, it doesn't feel the same to me as other romantic love stories, particularly other Disney romantic love stories. Usually, the protagonist and the love interest see each other and BAM! Sparks. But Belle and the Beast seem more like people who were forced to be roommates and eventually grew to respect and care about each other. A sort of Elphaba Galinda dynamic, if you will, although I know a lot of people see their relationship as romantic as well. We are so steeped in the message that the highest and deepest form of love is romantic and sexual that trying to argue that two people aren't in romantic love with each other is often seen as trying to lessen their feelings for each other. But there are other very strong forms of love, and Belle and the Beast's relationship feels to me like it falls outside of the normative romantic standards of our society. I mean, yes, they do kiss, but besides that, I feel like most of their positive interactions are things friends could do together. And long before I knew about being aromantic, I knew that if I ever were to get married, I would want it to basically be just like hanging out with a good friend every day. And that's how I imagine Belle and the Beast relationship continues after the events of the movie. Both of them really needed a friend before they met, so I feel like they would both be happy with a close platonic relationship. I'm not trying to claim that this is what the movie meant to imply, I'm just saying that realizing that I didn't see their relationship as romantic helped reinforce my understanding of my romantic orientation. Also, the VHS tape that I have is the special edition, which includes a deleted scene, part of which involves Belle helping the Beast relearn how to read, which is very sweet, and which again I think a lot of people could interpret as romantic, but which could also be interpreted as one friend sharing their hobby with another. The other part of that deleted scene is the song Human Again. This was also added back in when the movie was adapted into a Broadway show, and while I don't think it's strictly necessary, I do greatly enjoy the way it further develops the sidekick characters. Even without that number, I find them extremely fascinating. 
Lots of Disney heroes have sidekicks, but most of them are focused on helping the protagonist and or love interest purely out of friendship and loyalty. For example, Sebastian, Flounder, and Scuttle try to get Eric to kiss Ariel because they know how much she wants to be human permanently. Lumiere, Cogsworth, Mrs. Potts, Chip, and the rest of the household objects similarly try to get the Beast and Belle together, but they have their own motivations for doing so. They're tired of being household objects, they want their human bodies back. And that's what leads them to give the Beast dating tips and to defend him to Belle even though he clearly hasn't been treating them very well. And on top of that, they're just very fun characters and their design is so aesthetically appealing. When I was a kid, Lumiere was my favorite, I think mostly because I liked the color yellow and I enjoyed his French accent. Now I'm not sure why if they're all French, only like two characters have French accents, especially since Jerry Arbach normally had an American accent, but whatever, I still love it. As I got older, I realized I was more of a Cogsworth, as a constantly anxious, rules-oriented nerd. Cogsworth is also, if not aromantic, at least cynical about romance, as evidenced by his amazing line, there's the usual things, flowers, chocolates, promises you don't intend to keep, which was improvised by David Ogden Stiers, who was gay, so I'm claiming Cogsworth as a queer character. And then, of course, there's Angela Lansbury as Mrs. Potts, who didn't think her voice was strong enough for the title song, but then nailed it in one take. She seems a little old to be the mother of a young child, although maybe she adopted Chip and all the other teacups, whom she refers to as his brothers and sisters. Or maybe the curse made children stop aging, but not adults. I have so many questions about the timeline of this story. Like, how long is Belle in the castle? In some ways it feels like a few days, and in others several years. The prologue states that the rose would bloom until the beast's 21st year, and Be Our Guest establishes that they've been cursed for 10 years, most of which I have to assume they spent choreographing and rehearsing that astonishingly epic number. Holy moly, I never get tired of watching that scene. Shout out to the forks doing the can-can on the chandelier, but I digress. This 10-year gap between the beginning of the curse and the rose wilting implies that the entire castle was cursed because an 11-year-old child wouldn't let a stranger into his house, which feels like an incredibly unreasonable response from the Enchantress. I suppose the prologue could have meant his 21st year as a beast, so it could have been 10 years between the curse and when Belle first arrived, and then Belle could have been there for 11 years before the last petal fell. But then I don't understand why it would have taken Belle's father, Maurice, that long to go after her, considering the castle could not be more than a few hours by horse away from their village. Or why Gaston wouldn't have given up pursuing her after all that time. Not to mention that nobody seems to have aged. The only explanation that somewhat satisfies me is that perhaps the rose bloomed fully until the beast turned 21 and then the petals slowly began falling over several years after that, but that still doesn't really make a ton of sense. Not that it really matters at all, I just like to overanalyze things like this. Anyway, the stage show got around at least some of my questions by changing the prologue to say that the rose would bloom for many years. The stage show also changed it so the objects were becoming less animate over time, and when the last petal fell, they would be forever frozen, and I like the way that heightens their stakes even more. While I'm talking about the stage show, I'd like to mention that Beauty and the Beast was the first Disney animated movie to be adapted for Broadway, which I think makes perfect sense because the movie already feels a lot like a Broadway show, especially in terms of the musical numbers. 
I believe the first national tour was the first live musical I ever saw when I was around six or seven years old, and it definitely fueled my love of musical theater. I saw it for the second time at the same theater just last year. It was the first public performance there since the pandemic shut down, and it was so beautiful and energetic and moving that I sobbed into my mask through most of it. What a wonderful way to be welcomed back to the world of live theater. Anyway, I know that this story is weird and kind of disturbing and doesn't make complete sense when you think about it too hard, but it's told so beautifully that none of that really matters. At its heart, it's about overcoming prejudices and seeing the humanity in everyone. The Beast was cursed because he was repulsed by the old beggar woman's appearance. Belle is initially repulsed by his appearance, while he initially sees her as just a means to break the spell. Once they get to know each other as people, they are able to form a deep and powerful connection. Belle has also been very judged for her appearance. The entire opening number is about how the villagers are annoyed that she doesn't act the way a beautiful girl is supposed to act. And of course, Gaston thinks she will be thrilled to marry him since they are the two most beautiful people in town, apparently. This is an attitude that a lot of asexual people encounter. There seems to be a widespread misconception that asexuality isn't really a thing and that people only identify as asexual because they're not attractive enough to find a partner. So when people like that encounter someone they find attractive who identifies as asexual, they feel the need to reassure the asexual person that they're too good looking to be asexual. It's kind of similar to the stereotype that only ugly girls are bookish and that Belle is therefore funny for reading while pretty. Because the human brain is so good at finding patterns and categorizing things, even people who don't try to treat others based on stereotypes are unconsciously biased in some way. We always have more to learn about other people. And while it is bittersweet and strange to find that you can change and learn that you are wrong, it's also incredibly worth it. I love that this movie taught me that at a young age. Thank you for listening to me discuss, or more accurately, ramble on about another of my most frequently rewatched movies. I love this one so much that I find it difficult to articulate my thoughts about it, but hopefully at least some of what I've said made a little bit of sense. Beauty and the Beast is my most rewatched animated film, and therefore the last one I will talk about on this podcast, but I hope you will stay tuned as I struggle to articulate my love for the remaining 16 live-action films on my list. As always, I will leave you with a quote from the next movie. To do then now would be retro. To do then then was very now-tro, if you will. <laughs>